We get to finish uh, the book of Zechariah today, which we've been working through now for about three months. So let's pray. Father, we are, um, we're in many ways humbled by the privilege that you've granted us in the day and age and place in which we live. And Lord, you've, uh, you've blessed us with your word, preserved through the centuries. But we think of those that lost their lives to make it available to us so simply. And Lord, uh, we want to enter in now. We want to sit under that word. We want to have it read us as much as we take some time now to read it. We pray that as you promise uh, in the book of Hebrews, Lord, that uh, like a sharp two-edged sword, that it would do sort of a cutting surgical work in us. We want to be a people that we don't just come and learn facts. But Lord, that our hearts are impacted as a result of our time together. Lord, that we're challenged. And Lord, as you do by your Holy Spirit, that we're challenged in such a way that we wouldn't turn and run, but that we would uh, we'd press in closer to the God that loves us and cares for us so much. And so, Lord, fill this place with your spirit. You promised us that you would go and you would leave us your Holy Spirit, our teacher. And so we pray that you would come and you'd minister to every heart that's in here today, those that are with us online. Lord, bless the going forth of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are finishing Zechariah. Zechariah, that post-exilic book. Remember, thir uh, 14, 13, 12, there are um, books of the minor prophets. We are in the 11th of those 12 books, uh, and we're bringing it to a close today. We've been, as I said, three months now, or maybe even more than that, we've been looking at the book of Zechariah. So I hope by now you know that there are three main and differing sections of this book. There's the first uh, eight chapters, six chapters actually, which look at eight different visions that our friend Zechariah received that he gave to the people. The whole purpose of those was there was a discouraged people that needed hope again. And he came and God uh, revealed these uh, future uh, plans, if you will, that he had uh, for his people, and God worked in powerful ways. We then looked at that answer to that question, should we keep doing our rituals now, you know, this happened, as that happened, should we just keep on doing them like we always did or have been, and, and he addressed that, no, don't just do ritual for ritual's sake, what's your relationship with God like? That's the key question, and he, he took some time in that section of the book, and then as we came to the last four chapters, five chapters or so, we were looking at two sermons, two traditional messages where God raised up Zechariah and he said, I want you to go and I want you to tell the people this. And we spent our time looking at that. We are now in the third week looking at the second of those two sermons, the, the theme of which was the day of the Lord. So many of our songs today were about the day of the Lord and the, the coming of our king. Uh, and that message there about the day of the Lord, I, I pointed out last week, two weeks ago, that in the final three chapters of, of the book of Zechariah, you have something like 12 different references or uses of that phrase, the day of the Lord, or that day. 
And as we have spent some time considering, we know two things about the day of the Lord. Number one is it's not a literal day, but it's a period of time. And then secondly, it's a period of time which is marked by God's special intervention in the affairs of men. How the Lord enters in in a unique way. Now, God is always involved in the affairs of men. But how he enters in in a very unique way to accomplish his purposes for that period of time. And that phrase, the day of the Lord, it's like I said, it's about 12 or 15 times in the last sermon here in the book of Zechariah, the last three chapters. But it's a phrase that appears 325 times in the Old Testament. And so the day of the Lord is talked about or spoken about a lot of times in our Bible. It's something that we should certainly give a little bit of our effort to understand because it's a key point in our Bibles. 325 times found in the Old Testament. And, in, and many of them are in the minor prophets or the major prophets. Major prophets being Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, those prophets, Daniel, and then those minor prophets books that we have been looking at. And the day of the Lord sometimes, depending on the context, sometimes it will refer to a near-arriving event. Remember, the meaning is it's God's special intervention in the affairs of men. And sometimes it's a near-arriving event, like a, a Jonah situation where he goes into the city of Nineveh. In 40 days, you know, this place is going to be destroyed. That's a near-arriving event. Other times it speaks of a period of time that is still yet to come even for ourselves. And so a near-arriving event might be the Babylonian captivity. It might be the Assyrian captivity, which so many of the prophets came to the Jewish people and spoke of. Or it may be an event that is still yet future to us, like the end of the age. Zechariah, in his repeated use of the phrase, is referring to the end of the age. And we've discovered a couple things already now from Zechariah about the end of the age. One is God's full and final restoration of the Jewish people. Remember what he does here, what Zechariah does. His style is he starts way over here, and he said, this is how things are going to end up. And then he goes back and he builds and he explains everything leading up to that particular event. One of the key things we know about the end of the age will be the full and the final restoration of the Jewish people. We began learning last week as he's making his way to that point is that there are going to be and we're going to be some very difficult days ahead for the Jewish people. And so beginning in verse 1 today of Zechariah chapter 14, let's read this, you follow along. It says, now a day is coming, behold, for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. I'll gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city will go out into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and they'll fight, will fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount will move northward and the other half will move southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones that are with him. 
Again, just in those sets of verses there and even beyond what I just read, notice verse 1, it says a day is coming. Verse 4, on that day. Verse 6, on that day. You look down at verse 8, on that day it begins. And then verse 9, it begins on that day. Again, the theme of this final message is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in which the Lord brings to a close this present age and he'll institute his glorious kingdom. Skip down all the way to verse 9 there and notice it says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Brings to a close this age and institutes his glorious kingdom. Now sadly, I think sadly, before that glorious day, however, there will be dark and difficult days ahead for the Jewish people. As I, I told you at the beginning of our study, uh, there are many Jews that reject the traditional understanding of these chapters and say that they're basically anti-Semitic writings. And they are very difficult to read if you are a person of Jewish background and descent. That doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. I'm referring to the interpretations. But that's the conclusion that many Jews have. Zechariah began to inform us of those difficult days in the previous chapter. Look back to 13. Look at the last couple of verses, verses 8 and 9. It says, Now in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds, and we're talking about the Jewish people, will be cut off and perish, and one-third will be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. So he began talking about this, the fiery trials that some of those Jews will go through. He continues that in chapter 14. And again, I think these are difficult words. He says, Behold, a day is coming when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. It will be stolen. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be taken. Notice, the houses will be plundered and the women will be raped. And half the city will go out into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And so in the days immediately leading up to the return of Christ, Zechariah receives a vision or a prophetic word, and he reveals prophetically that there's going to be a final siege of the city of Jerusalem by the nations. Verse 2, it says there, and all the nations will come against Jerusalem to battle. Jesus addressed this as well. And there's a lot of information about these events scattered throughout our Bible. Jesus, when he gathered with some of his closest disciples, he was on the Mount of Olives, and he gave an extended lecture or sermon or speech to those disciples. We call that the Olivet Discourse because of the length of the speech that he gave to them. Delivered right there, just outside of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, you, it over, that's the Mount of Olives there. All these tombs at the bottom part of the picture, that's the Mount of Olives. If you look in the middle of the center picture, you see uh, the gold dome there. Uh, that's the Muslim, Muslim uh, mosque, Alaska Mosque. Um, that's like the heart of Jerusalem where that Muslim uh, uh, mosque is. But all of these tombs here that are located, they're all right there on the Mount of Olives. So that's how close the Mount of Olives is to the center of the city of Jerusalem. And obviously, all those tombs weren't there uh, 2,000 years ago. And somewhere there on that mount, Jesus sat down with his disciples, his closest disciples, and he began to teach them. And that teaching is called the Olivet Discourse. It's recorded for us two places in our Bibles, Luke chapter 21 and Matthew chapter 24. 
and you can read those, and 25, you can read them on your own. But I wanted to read a clip of it that relates to what Zechariah is talking about. This is from Luke 21, verse 20 and following. It says, now, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, a siege, then know that its desolation has come near. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter back into it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that was written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, I think there is a partial fulfillment of that with the Romans in 70 AD, but as I'm going to make my, try to make my point as we continue on, I don't think the full and complete fulfillment of that has occurred because there are still some things Zechariah is going to talk about that have not occurred historically. Jerusalem has been besieged and attacked many times in its history. But some of the things that we're about to look at here that Zechariah reveals to us are events that are yet future. So we'll continue on, and I'll point them out as we come to it. Verse 3, it says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. I said this before. We're talking about the battle of Armageddon that the Scripture teaches. And when all hope, hope seems lost for the Jewish people, we're done for, then Jesus will show up and will fight their battle. He'll fight their battle on their behalf. It says the nations converge around Jerusalem in the area of Jerusalem as there will be this series of wars and battles which will ultimately culminate in that battle of Armageddon, not too far from Jerusalem, 30 minutes or so, in what's called the Plains of Megiddo. That's how we get the Battle of Armageddon, the Plains of Megiddo there, this wide open field there for miles and miles in all directions, will be this culminating battle. And it's there that verse 3 of Zechariah will literally be fulfilled as the Lord will return and fight on behalf of his people. John the Apostle writes about that day and that event in the book of Revelation. And so I'll turn your attention to Revelation chapter 19. And he describes this moment, still yet future, this way. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one that was sitting on that horse is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes wars, war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You remember what John wrote at the start of his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word came and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The Word of God, the Logos, God in the flesh. Revelation continues, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Glory, hallelujah. 
Now, in what seems to be a subsequent event to that battle, like shortly thereafter, is we have Jesus entering to the city of Jerusalem and touching down, if you will, on the Mount of Olives. Now, I don't know if that's like this, like a mirror. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead and how he would kind of come and he would be here in this situation, he would talk and then he would sort of disappear and he'd be in another place and he'd interact with people. I don't know if it's something like that or I don't know if it becomes sort of this natural event. Uh, I, don't, I don't feel like we have enough explanation in the scripture. But at some point, in some way, Jesus will... Uh, Plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. I'll read it to you. This is Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. He says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Now, it seems there's some kind of an earthquake that is going to take place that's going to divide this land uh, in a new way. It's interesting, the Sheraton Hotel in the 1980s, that, that whole company, they were going to build a massive hotel on the Mount of Olives, spend billions of dollars building it. And they went and they did some research and found out that there's a fault line that runs directly underneath it. And they're like, you know what, let's not invest a billion dollars there. Let's invest it on the other side of Jerusalem or something like that. And somehow coinciding with this, the timing is going to be the miracle. Jesus will appear, it'll break open, uh, and a wide valley will be formed uh, it, within that Mount of Olives. And as we'll see, that's going to be the valley upon which the, many of the Jewish people can escape the siege that's going on in Jerusalem and get out into the wilderness for safety. That's the same mount that Jesus is going to return onto. It's the same mount that he descended from. Acts chapter 11 tells us that. You read uh, Acts, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, verse 11. It says, Jesus there, the angels there, I should say, speaking, say, men of Galilee, the same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And then they return to Jerusalem from the mount that's called Olivet. And so Jesus had appeared to his disciples for uh, a month and a half or so, and then it was time for him to be taken up into heaven. He went out to the Mount of Olives, and he was talking with his disciples. Didn't really finish his sermon. Just like, okay, I'm done. See ya. He started, and he took off into heaven. He ascended up into heaven. And what the heck? The disciples, where'd he go? You know, and the angels came, and they spoke. And they said, the same Jesus you saw taken up will come down to the exact same spot. And Zechariah speaks of it here in verse 4. Verse 5 goes on, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king. Isaiah writes about that earthquake, a big one that kind of marked time for people. Like, oh, it was, that was back before the earthquake. Um, splitting of the mountain provides the way of escape. Now this, as you look at this, this magnificent return, mountain splitting open, saving people from war and all of that. This is the type of coming that the Jews expected at Jesus' first arrival. You remember how many times they said to Jesus, uh, even his closest disciples, now are you going to set up your kingdom? Or Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can I be on your right and he on your left side? And so on. This is what they were expecting. But you remember, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. We call that the triumphal entry on what is today called Palm Sunday. He rode in on a donkey. He came in as a man of peace. He came in to be the suffering servant 
and the Passover lamb. That's not what the Jewish people expected. What the Jewish people were hoping for is he'd set up on that hill. It would split open. Everyone would know the king has come, and they would be dealt with. Well, there is a day, and that day is coming. Jesus promised that I am going to prepare a place for you, and I will come again, he said. And this time he's going to come, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign upon the earth. Now, finally, Zechariah gets to it, to that. Zechariah has been talking about the day of the Lord from the beginning of the book. And as we've been looking at each one of these visions that he did, or as we looked at each one of these visions that he did, they would all sort of mention this glorious kingdom, this millennial kingdom. But he never really delved into it. He never really explained it. And then he went on to another topic, and then he, he mentioned it again. Well, here, in, in verse 6 of chapter 14, he finally gets to it. All right, now remember his style is he starts over here. This is what we're working toward. And then he goes back and he builds toward it. Well, now we're there again. And so now he's going to explain what's going to happen on that day. And he's going to start talking about cosmic changes that are going to take place on that day. Some of you are going to love this one. I think my friend Barb, Susan, you're going to love this one. On that day, there shall be no light, uh, no cold, and no frost. No arguing in, in the sanctuary here of what the perfect temp is. 68 is the perfect temp. I don't know what it's going to be there, but the temperature will be perfect on that day. That's a cosmic change. Verse 7, there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. No more day, no more night on that day. Verse 8, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in the summer as in the winter. Notice that living waters, life-giving waters, will flow from Jerusalem. That's what Kyle referenced in his opening prayer this morning. And half of those life-giving waters will go to the Eastern Sea. That's what we commonly refer to as the Dead Sea. And it's dead and it needs life. And life-giving waters will flow to that sea that is filled with so much salt that everything is dead within it. And the other half goes on to explain that it'll go to the Western Sea. This is what we know of as the Mediterranean Sea, another salt body of water. Ezekiel 47 speaks of this water. And it tells us that this water is going to originate from a very specific spot in the city of Jerusalem. It's going to flow from Jerusalem. It's going to split off. Half will go to the Dead Sea. Half will go to the Mediterranean Sea. And it'll bring life and it'll heal, if you will, those waters. Ezekiel 47 tells us this. It's, he's speaking, says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Now, if you go back to this picture that we have up here, where the Dome of, that's the Dome of the Rock, actually. I called it something else earlier. Where the Dome of the Rock is, that area there, either replacing where the dome is or just to the side of where the dome is, will be where the, the third temple is going to be built in that day. We know that scripture makes it clear the temple will be built. Coming toward us is flowing toward the east. And toward us, where we have all of these tombstones, that's where uh, the mountain's going to be split in two, as we talked about earlier. 
And so this river will come toward us, it'll flow through that valley, and then it'll branch off and it'll heal those waters. That's what uh, Zechariah is speaking of. It's what our friend Ezekiel here is speaking of as well. He talks about how that water will bring healing. Verse 8 of Ezekiel says, And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, and it goes down into the Arabah, and it enters into the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the, where the river goes. And that's literal. That's literally what's going to happen during that uh, millennial age, the glorious age. Those waters will be healed, providing for the people. But you can't help but miss the symbolic meaning of these words as well, because there is a living water that flows that brings healing in our lives as well. And it says the work of the Holy Spirit enters into our lives and the presence of the Holy Spirit enters into our lives. He begins to do a healing work of all that is dead. He addresses our relationships. He addresses our families. He addresses our church life. He addresses every single area that we have to address and live, deal with in the lives that we live. And he brings a healing to it. He brings a perspective to it. He brings life to it. And so we look for the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We invite the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We submit ourselves in obedience to walk according to the ways he would have us to walk in our lives. And as we do, we feel and we experience that healing work there. We need that, amen? Are you with me? We do, every day of our lives and every moment of our lives. It's relationship with God, dependence upon God. Verse 9 goes on. It says, now the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day, and the Lord will be one, and his name will be one. How many times have we prayed, I'm trying to remember the prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I grew up Catholic, we prayed that a lot, I kind of had to, it was part of the, the rules um, there, you had to pray that prayer at certain times. But how many times in our hearts have we cried out, God? This world's driving me crazy. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, here's the answer to the prayer. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Verse 9 goes on and says, and on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. The idea there being all the earth will acknowledge him as God. You remember the old, I think it's called the Shamada, uh, something like that. Um, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That, that, praise, that little prayer there that they mentioned. I think that's right. I hope it's not totally wrong. But they'll recognize that the, the Lord is the one and only true God. Remember how many times Jesus, again, I, I referenced this a little bit earlier, but how many times people came to Jesus like, now Lord, now Lord, now Lord, and he would say, mine hour is not yet come. Well, here, his hour, the long-awaited hour has come. When the, the literal feet of the once rejected king will be firmly planted upon the Mount of Olives, just outside of the city of Jerusalem, where he had been crucified 2,000 years earlier. And that will become the earthly center of his rule and his reign for the next 1,000 years. The city that the Gentiles had trampled underfoot 
And by Gentiles there, I really think the context is unbelievers have trampled underfoot will become the location of his literal reign on the earth. Continuing sort of that physical transformation of the earth, look at verse 10. It says, the whole land, which is very mountainous, very hilly, the whole land will be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel, basically what is kind of the walled city of Jerusalem today. And it will be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem will dwell in security. Remarkable physical changes that are going to take place to that land, where the valleys will be raised, and the mountains will be made low, and the entire land will be turned into a plain. The natural defenses of those hills, which is one of the reasons why David chose it to be his uh, capital there, and he moved the capital there to Jerusalem. The natural defenses of the hills that surround all of that land will no longer be needed because of the presence of the Lord. It says in verse uh, 11 there at the end, Jerusalem shall dwell in security. In security, uh, two separate words. Going back in verse 12 to the conquering of his enemies, which he began in the beginning of the chapter, he says, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Yikes. Yeah, somebody said, <laughs> yeah. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord will fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beast may be in those camps. Anybody ever see Raiders of the Lost Ark? And they, the, yeah, that kid did, uh, that young man did. Uh, I don't know if you remember, it stood out to me when I was like 10 years old that like their faces rotted away and all that stuff. Yeah, I remember that too. I just wanted to share that with you. That's what it sounds like. It's like, what is going on here? It also sounds a lot like conditioned folks that are exposed to sort of a massive radiation uh, exposure, some nuclear bomb sort of thing. It sounds like that as well. Um, I did, you know, do, do some reading of uh, what those that were on the outskirts of the dropping of the atomic bomb experienced, not the people right in the midst of it, but even those that are on the outskirts of it that survived and how they explain some of the circumstances that occurred to them as a result, it sounds a lot like that as well. And if it, it ends up being something like that, I wouldn't be shocked. Clearly, though, from here, there's mayhem that is going to ensue on the planet. It says on, in verse uh, 13, it says, On that day, great panic from the Lord will fall on them. It says also in verse 13, the, one will be, the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other, and they'll be turned on one another. So there's this mayhem that is going to take place you know, in the midst of all of these events that are occurring. Now, what I'll remind you is that all of these things that we've been considering are part of this period of time 
that Jesus labeled as the Great Tribulation. And again, the Great Tribulation, the Tribulation is this seven-year period of time. The Great Tribulation is specifically this three-and-a-half-year period of time in which literally all hell breaks loose on the earth. It's as if it's the wrath of the enemy uh, is poured out. Literally, listen, billions upon billions of people will die during that final seven years of human history, whether that's through war or natural disasters or plagues or persecution from the Antichrist. And this is the material that chapter 6 through chapter 19 of the book of Revelation covered. And, And I'd encourage you, sometimes we read through Revelation and we're like, I don't know what is going on here. In the context of our study, it might be a good time for you to read through the book of Revelation again because you sort of have some of these working ideas that are going on in your head, and you go, oh, yeah, okay, now I see how that fits in. So this might be a good time for you to consider that. But again, this will be a period of great tribulation upon the earth. And against all odds, there will be some that survive the great tribulation. Believe it or not, there will be some. Not, not because they're, they're Christians or Jews or whatever, there will just be human beings that somehow survive the Great Tribulation. If I were you, if you're not a believer, I wouldn't anticipate that you're going to be one of them that can make it through or whatever. Because over two-thirds of the, the Earth's population is not going to make it. But there will be some that survive, and they will enter in, the Bible teaches, that they will enter into this glorious millennial kingdom where Christ is going to be the king that will rule over them. And this is who Zechariah is speaking of when he starts talking again in verse 16. He says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, they will go up year after year to worship the king, this is during the millennium, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain upon their land. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze, a drought. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. So Christ's millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, that is not heaven on earth. And to prove that point, if you read Revelation chapter 20, that speaks of the millennial kingdom. And I encourage you to do it. Read it. Revelation 20 speaks of the millennial kingdom. Revelation 21 speaks of a new heaven and a new earth that descends from heaven here on the earth. So they're two separate events. And so the millennial kingdom in that regard is not going to be this perfect, sinless place Christ is going to rule and reign, but there are still going to be people that live on the earth in that time, which will have a hardness of heart. You know, I ain't going up to Jerusalem. I went up there last year. I ain't going up there again. That's fine. You don't want to go up? You don't have to go up. But soon you begin to experience the consequences of not going up. And those nations that won't go up and rightfully give Christ the honor and glory that he is due by celebrating this Feast of Booths, they will experience the consequences of that. There will be a drought that will be upon their land. All the other nations that do come, instead of coming to Jerusalem for battle, as they had done so often throughout the history of the world, and especially in those last days, they will come to Jerusalem 
to worship the Lord. And they're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, there are a lot of feasts in the Old Testament that the Jewish people celebrated. The Feast of Booths was in many ways designed to be the most celebratory of all of the feasts. It was a seven-day feast. Anyone, those that were physically able, they would make their way to Jerusalem. They would set up outside the city of Jerusalem in these tents or whatever it might be, booths, tabernacles, tents that they would set up, and they would have basically a, a camping trip for seven days there. And during that time, they would remember the Lord's faithfulness to the Jewish people during the 40 years of their wilderness wandering that God provided. We wandered in a desert for 40 years, and yet we had food. We wandered in a desert for 40 years, and yet we had uh, something to drink. God provided. God is faithful. God took us from slavery in Egypt. For 400 years we were there, and he took us out of there without us having to fight uh, to kind of free ourselves. He miraculously brought us through the Red Sea by parting it and then sent the water back again to destroy our enemies and so that we could make it here and we could go to a place that he had promised for us, God's faithfulness. And for a thousand years during that kingdom, people will come to Jerusalem to celebrate God's faithfulness. And for those that choose not to go, verse 17, well, that's their choice but soon they will begin to experience the consequences of their decision. God won't make people worship him now or during the millennium. He's not going to make them worship him. He's not going to make them obey him. And if they choose to go their own direction, they will soon discover, as Paul would talk about in the book of Galatians, that whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And they will begin to experience, if you will, the advantages of worshiping him and honoring him. It'll be more evident than ever before on that day. And those that don't have time, those that aren't interested, they'll experience a dryness. And I think it's the same in our day, isn't it? On a, certainly on a lesser scale and on a personal scale. When you don't have time for the Lord, you're too busy for the Lord, you're not interested in the Lord, you begin to feel a dryness in your own life. You begin to see that you don't perhaps think as clearly or respond as you should respond. But it's as you begin to focus on the Lord and you worship the Lord and you remember the Lord for his faithfulness, he begins to fill your heart with a living water. And you are restored. Verse 20 goes on. It says, Now on that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and every pot in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. So that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there will no longer be a traitor, in the traitor with a D in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. On that day. This day we've been talking about. On that day, everything will be holy to the Lord. Now, I want to just remind you of this important thing. The word holy, it simply means set apart unto God and his purposes. That's what the word holy means. So it doesn't glow in a special way. Oh, that's holy. Look at that. It glows. Or he's holy. He glows. It's just someone or something that is set apart to the Lord. Now, notice this. In verse 20, it says that the bells that the horses wore, as they ran and made a nice little sound, that the bells would be holy to the Lord. 
Verse 20 goes on to say that the pots in the house of the Lord will be holy and that the bowls that are before the altar will be holy, set apart unto God and his ways. But also, and you would expect that, but also notice this, every pot in Jerusalem and every pot in Judah, all of those that are shoved in a pile at the bottom of your cabinets and you can't even find them and wonder if you even have that kind of a pan anymore, all of them, everyone will be set apart unto God for his glory. Everything in that day will be set apart unto the Lord for his glory. There will no longer be a distinction between the holy things and the common things, the holy things and the profane things, because all will be set apart to God and his purposes. And additionally, there'll be no difference, and I think this is really important for us today, there'll be no difference between the sacred and the secular. That's non-religious. No difference in that day. For again, all will be set apart to God uh, for his purposes. Now, in our day, there's not much of a difference between the secular, sacred and the secular in our day as well. And I, part of the reason why is because even things that were considered sacred are being watered down and becoming more secular. But here, just the exact opposite happens, not because all things were made common, but because all things were made holy. And the reality is this. That reality is going to be revealed or realized on that day, but here's the truth. We don't have to wait for that day for all the common things to become set-apart things. And the reason there's going to be no distinction on that day is because all things will be done for the glory of God on that day. And there is nothing that needs to prevent us from living that way for the remainder of our days here on the earth. We can live our lives in such a way that all things are for his glory. All things that we possess, all things that we do, all things that we treasure in our hearts, all of the attitudes of our hearts, we can live in such a way that it is for his glory. And when we do that, even the common things become holy. Even the common things become sacred. Paul the Apostle, he wrote this. He says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul also said this. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so whether we're singing songs of worship, and we had a great morning of worship and song, whether we're singing songs of worship gathered side by side with the saints here on a Sunday morning, or we're banging out computer code Monday through Friday at work at some secular job, both of those can be done for the glory of God. Whether you're preaching a sermon or you're running a register at Wawa or some convenience store, it can be done for the glory of God. Students, you can do your homework for the glory of God. And you could also do it with a bad attitude where God's not pleased. Here's one of my favorites. You can mow your lawn to the glory of God. You really can. If your hard attitude is wrong and you're just crying, I hate my parents making me mow this lawn, I should move away. You know? <laughs> God's not pleased. 
but you can mow your lawn to the glory of God. You can raise your kids for his glory. You can interact with your neighbor for God's glory. You can respond to frustration in a way that brings God glory. You can resist temptation for God's glory. You can tell others about Jesus to God's glory. You can invite them to church in order that he might receive glory. The point is do all that you do, whether in word or in deed, for his glory. And what begins to happen in your life is that the common becomes sacred. All things set apart unto God. And there is great joy in living life in that way. Amen, friends? Let's pray. Father, that sounds great sitting in this room. But then we get outside of these walls and we have to respond to someone that's driving us nuts. And we don't want to do anything to your glory. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that uh, sort of the hope of that high calling will sort of take up residence in our heart and kind of cry out from within of what we really long for and desire and what you really want for us in our lives as well. But we want to be a people that we go forth in this world and we encounter the things that we encounter in such a way, Lord, like Peter talks about, that people would come and they would ask for the reason for the hope that we have within us. Lord, that they would see a different person from who they typically encounter. And that would be an opportunity to point people to the Lord for your glory. Lord, we were created to give you glory. And when we do, we're living life in that sweet spot of life of what we were created for. And so, Lord, uh, you know we have a sinful heart and tendency as well. And so, Lord, anything that is separating us from being able to do that, we want to give over to you. We want to walk in the newness of life that is ours in Christ Jesus. But for any that aren't yet believers here, Lord, I pray that today would be the day they begin their relationship with you at the foot of the cross. That they would receive the sacrifice of your son as a sacrifice on their own behalf. And Lord, you would do what you promised to do and you have done in the lives of so many of us in this room. You would bring those cleansing waters to wash them clean, white as snow. You'd fill them with the Holy Spirit. You'd minister to the deepest places of their heart that they are now your child. And you'd spur them on as they run their race with you. Lord, spur us all on. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.